Well, good morning. I'm so glad to be back with you, and I just need you to know how much self-restraint I am exercising this morning. I am a Bible thumper. I am a history nerd. I'm a Baptist pastor who's been in Israel, and I'm teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. That is a dangerous combination for your lunch plans. <laughs> Let's look, though, at Matthew chapter 26. If you're using one of our Bibles there, you'll want to you'll have it. It's page 781 as we look at Matthew 26 and consider the betrayal of Jesus and the trial of Jesus. We are making our way towards the end of this gospel, slowly but surely. Matthew chapter 26 Verse 47, let's first consider Jesus betrayed. The Holy Spirit through Matthew, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, greetings, rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. And then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. The time has come. Jesus had predicted that it would, and here we have Judas falling away. Jesus is here speaking to his disciples, still in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and Judas comes with a posse. He comes with a posse here of Jewish leadership that is hostile towards Jesus. They come like thugs with swords and clubs, and notice that Judas calls him rabbi. The pattern of the disciples so far has been to call him Lord. Well, not anymore. Judas is no longer calling Jesus Lord. He's not following any longer. He calls him rabbi. And he betrays Jesus with a kiss. There's nothing really unique or special about a kiss. In that time, that was the normal greeting. So you have the end of the book of Romans. Paul says, greet one another with a holy kiss. It was the common first century Jewish way. It's nothing special. It was just a sign that Judas had told them, the one that I go and kiss, that's the one. Get him. Seize him. And so Judas falls away. And church, there's just got to be a lesson for us all here. And why does Judas, humanly speaking, why does he betray Jesus? We saw that back in verse 14. Look at chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. That word ought to send chills down our spine. That sentence, what will you give me? Judas chose mammon over God. Jesus has already said you can't serve two masters. He chose money over Jesus. And friends, we are all prone to this, especially in materialistic America, where every single one of us in this room is filthy rich compared to most of the world for most of world history. And Judas says, what will you give me for this? 
I mean, can you conceive of any clearer proof than the life of Judas for the need to be vigilant and remain faithful to the end? He literally walked with the Lord. He heard all of Christ's sermons. He sat under his teaching. He watched him work miracles. And yet, he chose riches, not even riches, over Jesus. What will you give me? And so, church, we got to be on guard. The love of money is a snare to the soul. It is a trap. And I wonder, as you go about your day-to-day life, do you view it that way? Wealth can be a great blessing. And it is a snare that you've got to be on guard for. And so I just wonder, do you actively seek to avoid this trap? We must, because riches will draw you away. Material wealth can numb your soul. John Wesley put it this way, money never stays with me. It, it would burn me if it did. I throw it out of my hands as soon as possible, lest it should find its way into my heart. You'd reflect that on Matthew 6, 24, that where your treasure is, there your heart is also. And you know what the best antidote to greed is? It's giving. Giving. Giving is one of the means of grace that Christ has given us that we might finish well. Remember the parable of the soils? We've hit it so often. Let's go back. It's just a few, few chapters. Matthew chapter 13. Various soils, several of them did not last. That's what we want, right? We don't want to be Judas. We want to finish well. We want to last. This is the point this morning. We want to last. How do we last? How can we be the type of soil that bears good fruit? Well, remember Matthew chapter 13. Look at verses 18 to 23 there. Jesus explaining the parable of the soils. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, you've got to hear and you've got to understand. The evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world, and here it is, the deceitfulness of riches. Choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case, a hundredfold, in another 60, and in another 30. The deceitfulness of riches is one of the reasons people don't finish well. It certainly was with Judas. But you've got to know that. Riches will deceive you. Most people pursue riches with all they have. And Jesus says they will deceive you like they deceived Judas. And so you don't need to deceive yourselves and think that you're above the deceit of riches. And so I would just ask pointedly, do you love money? We're all prone to it. Friends, every one of us are liable to this infection It's okay to have money. We need money. Ministry needs money. Missions needs money. It's okay to have money, but the question is, like Judas, does money have you? J.C. Rowell puts it this way, we may love money without having it. This is not a problem for people with it. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It's an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captive before we're aware of our chains. And so something we need to be thinking about. 
We ought to all memorize 1 Timothy 6.10. Every American ought to have this verse memorized. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. There it is. Through this craving, it's this love of money that many fall away from the faith. Judas certainly did. I love Proverbs 30. It's a great verse when it comes to this whole idea. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. This is what we want. Judas was drawn away, ultimately, humanly speaking, by the dollar. Look at verse 51. Matthew 26, and behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hands and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples left him and fled. So he says, then one of these, one of these with Jesus, they tried to behead one of the Jewish servants. Matthew doing, Matthew's really kind to Peter here. He's doing Peter a solid. We all know from other gospels it was Peter. Matthew doesn't name him. Keeps the guilty unnamed. John tells us the name of the servant, the servant of the priest. His name was Malchus. And you know, Peter wasn't aiming for the ear. Peter missed. Luke tells us Jesus touches his right ear, touches his right ear and heals it. And you got to wonder, this is all we get from Malchus. You got to wonder what happened to Malchus. He goes home, babe, you are not going to believe what happened at work today. (laughs) I just have to believe we're going to get to meet Malchus in glory. Who knows what he went on to do for the Lord. And Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter, once again, you're missing it. You're thinking worldly. That's what he said back in chapter 16. Remember when Peter was like, no, no, you're not going to have any cross. He says, you're setting your mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. Peter, this ain't it. This is not how I roll. What's our fighter verse? Beloved, never avenge yourselves. This isn't that kind of kingdom, Peter. You've got it twisted. This is an upside down kingdom. This kingdom does not come by human force, but by the force of the gospel and the power of the spirits. Put your sword up. Very clearly here retaliatory violence is at odds with the kingdom of Christ. It is incompatible, which Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 5. Flip back there with me, the Sermon on the Mount, right in the middle. This was not a small piece of teaching from Jesus. Look at Matthew 5.38. You have heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what Peter's thinking. That's what our natural inclination is. Jesus says, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Flip over to verse 43 of Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is not that kind of kingdom, Peter. 
Gospel of John chapter 18, Jesus puts it this way. My kingdom's not from this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom, it's not from the world. It's not, it doesn't come through violence. Because its source is not from the world. Here's how Luke puts it in Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered, the kingdom of God's not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. See, it's a spiritual kingdom that comes slowly over time like a little seed that ultimately grows to be the biggest. Like a little leaven that slowly penetrates the entire loaf. Peter, this is not the way. Here's how the old hymn puts it. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, but deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. Lead on, O King Eternal. So the enemy is not people. I know it looks that way. It's not, Peter. A mistake that's been made a million times over, right? But Paul tells us very clearly, who's the enemy? We do have an enemy. We are at wartime, but Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, people. People aren't the problem. But against the rulers and against the authorities and against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 2 Corinthians 10, same thing. Though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. Our weapons, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh. And so Jesus tells Peter, put the sword back. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And I don't need your weak assistance anyway. All I have to do is ask my father. He had sent 12 legions of angels. A Roman legion at the time was about 6,000 men. And so Jesus, I could just, you know, I could just ask and I could have 72,000 angels right here with me. Thanks, Peter. But this is not how all this works out and I'm good. And notice that they come at Jesus who was with them day by day teaching, they come at him as if he were a robber. This word for robber, sometimes translated bandit, it was a really a specific word. It was often used of the Jews at that time who would get violent in order to try to overthrow Rome. They were called zealots. It was really the same thing as saying they were a religious terrorist, those who would get violent on behalf of their religion. It's the word he uses here. It's not used often. And they're treating him like this robber, like a terrorist, like a bandit. And this word will be used just two more times in the rest of this gospel. Both about the same bandit, so it's really used one time. Just flip a page with me to Matthew chapter 27, verse 38. Then two robbers, bandits, were crucified with him. One on the right and one on the left. See, Jesus will be mistakenly treated as a robber till the very end. But Jesus says, Scripture's got to be fulfilled. This is all in fulfillment of Scripture. Nothing here is happening by accident. And then the disciples all leave him and flee, just like Jesus had said they would. Look at chapter 26, verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. They quickly forgot their vow. Look at 26 verse 35. 
Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. They talked a big game. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And at the end of the day, they fear man and they fear death more than they want to honor Christ. They didn't want to die. And so they bail. You know what? It's easy to poke at. And we would probably do the same. We flaky disciples. We need to cultivate a spirit of humility. Humility, a spirit of self-distrust. And we should often pray, Lord, keep me. So Jesus is betrayed. Second, let's consider Jesus' trial. Verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus as they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. So we have the scribes and the elders, they're, they're gathering together at the high priest's house. They're gathered together against Jesus. This word gathered, Matthew's used it several times in 21 and following. It's an important word that's really got a lot of Old Testament background, most notably Psalm chapter 2 that we've seen again and again, which is a psalm about the coming Messiah. It's a psalm about the coming king. And just let me read a couple verses from Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. That word anointed is where we get the word Messiah, Christ, Christos. Saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from among us. Psalm 2 is about the pagans, the nations, gathering against the Lord in order to remove him and to remove his Christ. And sadly and stunningly and tragically, now we have the Jewish leadership acting like the nations, acting like the pagans, and are now against the Messiah, and they're gathering to plot his death. And you have Peter following alongside, who's about to have his own trial. And the Jewish leaders, they're looking for lies in order to kill the Messiah. And many people offered false evidence, wasn't good enough. And then a couple of people come and they accuse him of saying that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Remember, the temple was everything. The temple was really the center of Old Covenant Judaism. It was the heart of the spiritual, religious, economic, social, everything, all of life. And Jesus talked about it a lot in the Gospel of Matthew. It's ultimately what got him crucified. He had said, he's greater than the temple. He's greater because at the end of the day, he is the temple. He is now where the presence of God is found. Emmanuel, as this gospel started in Matthew 1.23. He is where heaven and earth overlap. He is where forgiveness of sins is found. That's why he got in trouble. He was going about forgiving sins. And the Jewish leaders, no, no, you can't do that. That happens at the temple. Jesus says, it happens through me. Gospel of John, chapter 2, verse 19. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that was Jesus had spoken. Jesus said, I am the new temple. Destroy it and it'll be raised. And of course, remember from chapter 24, flip back there with me. Chapter 24, Jesus had prophesied the destruction of the temple because of their unbelief. Look at 24, 1 and 2. Just to remind you, Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. And he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As we saw, Jesus predicted that within a generation, the temple would be destroyed. Lots of things I'd like to tell you about Israel, many meaningful things. One of the most tragic ones, but also confirming, was the fact that there were, they left. There's many of the stones still in a pile of rubble from when AD 70 happened and Rome came in. You know, there's, the Western Wall is not part of the temple, right? That's outside the temple. Just like Jesus said, there was not one stone left upon another. A bunch of pile of rocks. Jesus is a true prophet. He gave them ample opportunity. Would you please turn to me, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you would come to me. But he said, if not, this is going to happen. Very offensive. And before he entered the temple, remember what he did? Look back at chapter 21, verse 12. As he's on his way into Jerusalem, what does he do? Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And then Jesus told parable after parable about coming judgment on the temple. Look at chapter 22, verse 7. It says, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then flip over to chapter 27, verse 38. This is a key part of his mission and his teaching. Repent or judgment will come. 27, 38. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you're the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Later on in the early church, book of Acts chapter 6, right before Stephen preaches, we read this, And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And so all this, we could say more, shows that Jesus and his posture towards the temple was a central part of the reason why he was crucified and a central part of why people oppose this Jesus movement. They're against the temple. And so someone comes forth and throws this out, and now that's all they need. The Jewish leadership now has something to work with. Look at verse 62 of Matthew 26. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, 
I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You've now heard this blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. So he's questioned. Jesus is questioned by the high priest, but he remains silent. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And so the case here doesn't seem to be going anywhere. And then Caiaphas has a brilliant move, at least politically. And he just asks him straight up, are you the Christ, the Messiah? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, you have said so. Of course, the Messiah and the Son of God were one and the same. Maybe you remember way back in 2 Samuel 7, the promises that God made to David. He said, David, you will have a son And I will be a father to him. And so this coming king would be a son of David and a son of God. Psalm 2, later on in Psalm 2, says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, the king, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Back in Matthew 16, 16, at Caesarea Philippi, Peter said when he made the revelation of who he was, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus here quotes two crucial Old Testament passages, ones that we've actually seen multiple times over. Daniel chapter 7, and he combines it with Psalm 110. Let me read those. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. And was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Psalm 110.1 says, it's from David. He says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All the time you mention, you hear anything about the right hand of God, it's talking about Psalm 110. And these are unique and important Old Testament passages that uniquely speak of the heavenly enthronement of the Messiah, him being exalted, him being given all authority. God's going to share his authority. Look again at what Jesus says in verse 64. You said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man, Daniel 7, seated at the right hand of power. Psalm 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, Daniel 7, 13 and 14. What's going on here? You know, sometimes these verses are taken as the second coming. That's wrong. That's not right. Why? We've seen it multiple times. It's like we saw him back in chapter 24. This is talking about his first coming. Why do we know that? Four reasons. Number one, audience relevance. Notice who he's talking to and notice what he says. You, Caiaphas, you will see me. You will see the Son of Man seated and then coming. 
So if this were the second coming, that just wouldn't be true. Caius would be long dead. Second, way back, we've seen it several times, that Daniel 7, 13 and 14 is not talking about a descent from the clouds, but an ascent. The coming of the Son of Man in Daniel 7 is not about him coming here. It's about him going there. It's, it's him coming from earth to the Ancient of Days. In other words, it's his enthronement. It's his exaltation. It's the ascension. Daniel 7 is about the first coming. Third, Psalm 110 is always, is quoted all over the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. And it's talking about, again, his first coming, his exaltation, his ascension. And then fourth, notice the time indicator Jesus says. He tells him, from now on, Caiaphas, from now on, you will see me vindicated. If you've got the older NIV, the 1984 NIV, it says, in the future, you just need to mark that out. The new NIV, the 2011 NIV, they got it right. They got it right. It means from now on. It does not mean in the future. It never means that. It's from now on. And so this then is a remarkable claim. Jesus is saying, yes, not only that, you're going to see me exalted, Caiaphas. And Caiaphas gets it. That's why he reacts like he does. Jesus says, I am the Son of Man who will soon be given all authority. I will inherit a kingdom of all nations. Jesus is the one who will be exalted to the right hand of God, currently a victim. Currently judged by a biased and sinful human court. But soon. He'll be seen as one who's on par with the authority of God himself. The tables will soon be turned. And so Caiaphas knows exactly what he's saying, and Caiaphas tears his robes, and he accuses him of blasphemy. Notice notice these three titles here that Jesus, by the way, gives himself. Who is Jesus? He's the Messiah. He's the king. He's the son of God. He's the son of man who has all authority. Jesus here throws down the gauntlet. He's claiming to be the king. He's claiming to have the very authority of God, the Messiah, the son of man, the son of God. And so I just got to ask really everyone in here, how will you respond to this son of man, son of God, king of kings? If you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm really glad you're here. How will you respond to these claims? I just urge you to consider him. Consider Christ. Again, he leaves you no option for neutrality. He demands decision if he is who he said he is. Consider him. He's the true and final prophet, priest, and king. His call to you is to trust him and repent. That means trust him as Lord and turn from sins and turn towards him. Drop your agenda and take on his agenda and you'll find life. Look at verse 67. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? If we've been reading the gospel, notice the irony here. They're mocking this man. They're calling him a false prophet as they beat him when he had prophesied these very actions. Flip back to chapter 16, verse 21. Verse 
From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed on the third day, be raised. Here he is predicting it, predicting this would happen. Flip over to chapter 20, verse 19. He says, I must be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified and raised on the third day. And so here they are mocking him, calling him a false prophet, fulfilling the things he prophesied. Their very mockery proves he knows what he's saying. Their very mockery proves he is the Christ. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Southside, don't be surprised if we end up having to endure such mockery ridicule, even betrayal for our commitment to Christ. Jesus said back in chapter 10, a disciple is not above his teacher. If they treated him this way, we should expect such treatment from the world. The world will wield the same weapons against us. But as Ryle notes, there's one great difference. We're going to drink a few bitter drops, perhaps. Jesus Christ drank the cup to the very dregs. Jesus is betrayed, tried, suffered, will be crucified, and he suffers for us in your place. He's betrayed so that you and I would never be betrayed, ultimately. His own betray him and bail on him. He's abandoned, ultimately, that we might be welcomed by the Father. He's arrested unjustly, falsely accused, lies spread. His trial is a farce. He's struck, he's slapped, he's mocked, he's spat upon, and he endures it all. Could have ended it in a moment, and he endures it all. This king of glory, this eternal son, and as we'll soon see, this is just the beginning, and he does it all for us. In our place, the great exchange.